This is a Charles Russell Speechlease podcast. Morning, all. It's my pleasure this morning to host three individuals who all represent a different side of the hospitality industry in what I'm sure will be a very interesting discussion. Before I go into the topic of this podcast, I'll first introduce myself and then ask my guests to do the same. My name is Caroline Swain. I'm a senior associate in the commercial team at Charles Russell Speechlease. I work with hospitality clients on their supply chain relationships, marketing and advertising issues, and consumer activations and policies. Frank, would you like to introduce yourself? Thank you, Caroline. Um, so I'm Frank Bandura, and um, I have been a CFO. Um, in fact, I am a CFO um, in the restaurant business, and I have been throughout most of my career. Um, I love working in the hospitality space. I can't think of any place that I'd rather be. Um, I currently work for myself and um, I offer interim and consultancy services to the hospitality sector. Thank you. Nigel, would you like to introduce yourself? Thank you for that. Uh, yeah, my name is Nigel Scorey. I'm the founder and CEO of a company called Procure4. Um, we provide additional capacity, market insight and tools uh, to help companies restructure their third-party costs um, across organizations both here and in the US. We work across a number of different sectors, but a significant part of our business is in hospitality and leisure. So in the last 10 years or so, we've worked with a number of high street brands such as Pizza Express, Wagamama, Carluccio's, KFC, as they've grown their empires. Um, in the last six months, we've worked with one or two as they've gone through the survival process and are now working on sort of recovery. So, yeah, we're we're helping organisations to restructure as they come out of COVID. Thanks, Nigel. Over to you, Ingrid. Thanks, Caroline. My name is Ingrid Safin. I'm a real estate lawyer and a partner at Charles Russell Speechlease. Um, my clients include... Uh, businesses from the F&B uh, retail and leisure sectors, um, as well as broader sectors, uh, corporate occupier energy um, and office occupiers. Um, I've got a particular interest in retail uh, leisure and F&B having acted for clients in that sector for over 20 years. Great, thanks all. So we're meeting today on the fifth day after the partial reopening of hospitality venues in England. We've seen pub goers in the snow, people lunching in the rain and even the odd glass of wine in the sun. It's certainly an English April. What we want to discuss this morning is the future of the industry post pandemic and how those in the industry can build back their businesses after what has been a really devastating year. We're going to look at three general areas across three mini podcasts. Um, the first is real estate and restructuring. The second is re-examining your proposition. And the third is gonna be looking at future gazing and what, what's happening next. We hope you enjoy what I have no doubt will be a really interesting discussion. So looking first then at real estate and restructuring, um, I suppose an open question, but perhaps I'll direct this to you, Frank, um, initially. How has the landscape changed for owners and occupiers of hospitality venues in the last 12 months? And how do you anticipate that it will change over the 12 months to come? Yes, thank you, Caroline. So undoubtedly, um, it has changed dramatically. So on a very basic level, um, many, many hospitality businesses, well, I would say most hospitality businesses have been closed for 
seven or eight months in the last 12, um, which is an unprecedented um, uh, statistic or an unprecedented fact. Um, hospitality businesses aren't used to being closed. Um, I think, so, so that's presented a number of challenges, um, mainly around survival and also really about the, the structure or the health of the business as we entered this unprecedented time. So it's, it's really forced hospitality businesses to re-examine, or it should have forced hospitality businesses to re-examine um, their structures, but also um, how they relate to their customer base. Because, of course, um, what, what's happened is, is that customers have been prevented from, from going to hospitality. So there's, there's been a wholesale sort of re-examination of, um, of structures, so balance sheet structures, but also uh, um, um, you know, really, really the, the whole brand and how it relates to, to customers. And of course, I mustn't, I mustn't forget, it's, it's also made lots of businesses um, consider how they relate to their employees because um, what what during this period of closure we've we've uh, we've been anticipating that there will be a time of reopening and therefore we need to make sure that we keep our our, our employees so there's a whole issue around motivation of employees at a time when they're not actually working they're not physically working for for you so there's been there's been lots and you know there's I think it's a seismic change is is probably the right way to describe it and of course this has been going on in many sectors of the economy but but I I, I think that hospitality is is probably um, uh, you know probably the very the very obvious and uh, industry that's had the deepest impact that the closures have had the deepest impact on just just on that Frank if I may just to add a bit more context I think you'd agree that this is something that's been coming for a while in one respect in that a lot of the particularly the brands and the managed restaurant groups had i believe overextended so in the pursuit of growth they'd taken on sites in secondary and tertiary locations they'd taken on sites with higher leases than they would have you know in hindsight wanted to do so when this covid hit 12 months ago, there were already underlying problems in the industry. There, there were already a number of brands which were had taken on considerable debt, had overextended in terms of the, the number and locations of their sites. I would even go as far as to say their sort of menus and operations had become more complex in their desire to serve a broader customer base. And so the, the sector was fragile as we came into this. And a number of things that have happened in the last 12 months take to one side the fact that they've been closed. You know, it's accelerated the need to focus on some of these things, to focus on leases, to focus on sites, to focus on your consumer proposition. I, I, I think they'd have had to do that anyway in the coming few years. But of course, they'd have had more time to think about it. They'd have had more cash to finance it. Um, but I think some of these things would have had to have happened anyway. Uh, it's a good. It's a very good point, Nigel, I, and I totally agree um, with you. Where it's and it's quite interesting to spend a little bit of time on on the context as you, as you um, as you have done, and the context was very much that there was that whether whether the particularly casual dining where casual dining had got to, was that 
that there was there were lots of um, there was lots of money had flooded into the sector five or six years ago, and it had fueled um, a, a, a growth in in the number of restaurants and the number of, of offerings. And one could argue now that 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 was excessive. Um, and of course, it was the money that was coming into the sector was was received in the form of debt. So you quite rightly say. Um, that, that that there's a certain momentum behind that, and, and if the momentum is 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 ongoing and there's no there's no um, cessation of that momentum, then you sort of you almost you almost get away with it. But then but then with COVID happening, it has forced lots of companies to examine um, whether these whether whether that strategy was was previously uh, uh, unviable. Um, and the other, the other thing which I think is important, in order, in order as more capacity came to the market with, with this cheap money um, during the sort of the early part of this decade, um, in order to try and appeal to customers, many, many restaurant chains resorted to, to quite heavy discounting. So it's, it was perfectly possible, you know, never to pay, to pay the, full, the full price for, um, for, a, for an advertised dish. Because of the quantity of offers, so it was it was a race really to the bottom, you know, continuing expansion, um, and and then and but 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 not an increasing customer base, and then trying to to discount um, your your top line and and obviously reduce your margin to try and you know get more customers through the, through the door to compete with the chain that you know or the restaurant that opened just down the road. So it was a it was a very toxic mix, and I think that's that's actually important that um, to, to to underline as you have done. Just keeping on that point, as we then start to talk about what the companies need to do in those early days, the very strong brands grew because they were in a particular, I would argue, market segment. They were they were you had Pizza Express leading the way in pizza. You then had your own business, Frank Carluccio, in terms of Italian cafe-style dining, Wagamama, Asian fusion food. These things were these things were quite distinct, and therefore consumers were quick to sort of be excited by these different types of offering. What also happened is the market became cluttered with not just uh, Me Too brands or similar brands, but also I think is something to look at by companies coming in and offering a whole range in a menu so that so that instead you know you had a gourmet burger king come in and and these sorts of business and you could go somewhere and get a really good burger within three years you could go anywhere and get a really good burger you know you, you had you had people really focusing on pasta because before it was poor it was coming out of a well, I won't go into the details of how it was produced. And you had fresh pasta dishes and they were fantastic. But then eventually a number of places would do that. And so the competition really increased. And so these brands that could grow because they were the places to go to get this quality, to get this different type of, of meal and, and, and experience, it became a bit blurred as well. So, so I think as... That's an important thing because as we talk about what businesses need to do now, one of the things I think they need to think about is focusing on what their true differentiation is. So if you go in restaurants in the US, I'm sure you've all been there, 
the menus are pretty much the same. You, it doesn't matter whether it's branded as Italian or whatever. They all offer wings. They all offer quesadilla. They all offer steak. They all offer prawn. And I think one of the things to learn coming off the back of this is be really focused on what differentiates you. What, what is it that you can do extremely well and will attract customers to your to your outlet? And, uh, and I think that had been lost a little bit as well. I don't know what you think. So I couldn't I couldn't agree more. <clears throat> so so we're 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 really describing a number of sort of factors. So we're describing this the, the fact that that there were lots of uh, restaurant chains, particularly casual dining, that that were growing rapidly, and in order to sustain this growth and appeal to a to as wide a range of customers as possible, you know there was this this phenomenon of discounting and also expanding the menu. At the same time, customers. Were, were actually sort of saying, um, actually, I want a bit more than that. I want something. I want something that that represents who I am. That that represents, you know, uh, my my specific, you know, demographic and my desires and wants. And so, um, so really, so so the desire for quality was quality and and authenticity was was actually increasing. And I think some some restaurant particularly the smaller independent ones were able to address that so you 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 have you've got this market almost sort of pulling itself apart and then along co comes covid and that's when 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 that's the sort of the the, the really the, the the time when when restaurant groups were forced to critic or should have been forced to critically examine decisions that were made in a in in, in historically in a different time that's really helpful so i think it's it's clear that there have been years of debt fueled growth, and there's it's led to a sort of over expansion in the market, um, and a number of hospitality businesses that we can now see are just completely over leveraged. It's it seems reductive almost to um, say that the outcome of that and what will happen next is just closures. Um, so I wonder if you um, have any thoughts about what options these businesses have beyond simple you know just closing of sites um in order to sort of look at their assets and and restructure them to make sure that they you know end up with a business that is surviving in 12 months time i think even though closures are a sort of a blunt-edged instrument i do think that has to be um one of the things that's closely examined yeah, and I think I think there's there's sort of there's there's a spectrum of sort of type of restructuring. So there's the very um, well, I think it's very obvious, but perhaps it's not. There's the straightforward negotiation with with what with landlords to say, look, we're in an extremely difficult situation. This is what we can do. We need your help, and try and read a consensual solution, reach a consensual solution, which is what the government have been um, hoping was going to happen so so that's that's still that's still part of the army but i think i think any restaurant business that is of any sort of scale does have to look at and consider the the possibility of closures and this is a difficult decision because because there's very often a lot of emotion um tied to opening in a particular location you know it's it's it should be right it's great you know we've spent a lot of money so there's a lot of sunk cost in it so I think those decisions have to be critically examined, and and, and I think in a in a non-emotional way, um, and if the the site is is not viable, then then um, then that decision, uh, I, I guess, has to be has to be made that, that it's not worth pursuing. And sometimes, you know, uh, sometimes once again, that can be uh, at the end of a consensual negotiation with a landlord. 
but equally um, there are there are um, legal ways of of um, of achieving that CVA or you know or, or administration but but I also think so so that's that's the sort of the the financial bit and and, and, and the restructuring but I also think it's it's important that that um, that every aspect of um, what the business is is examined um, and and, um, and and thought about and, and a sort of a strategy comes comes out of that. So, you know, so how how does how does uh, a, a business communicate with its um, customers? Is that are we talking to them in the right channels? Is are the messages the right ones? Are they working? Are they appealing? You know, how do we how how many times do we need to um, think about the menu? Uh, how many times do we need to change the menu? Um, how are we? How are we? How are we making sure that our people are happy and 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 be uh, and want to carry on working for us? So I think there's a there's a whole host of things to look at, and I think the smart businesses will have exam will have thought about all of those things and will have come up with with a with a strategy for the future. And I know we're going to talk about the future. Um, um, I, I, we're going to talk about the future later. Um, so, so I think it's I think it's time. So, for instance, it's quite interesting because in in my business, one of the things, and I'm working for Gusto at the moment. Uh, one of the things that we've um, realised um, uh, is is that we have a really really strong and loyal customer base. They actually want to come to Gusto's. They love going to to a, to a Gusto, and they and and so we've we've really examined how we're going to. Um, approach that and how we're going to continue encourage encourage them so we thought about how um, we want to we want to divert some of the money that we were putting into discounting we want to put that into loyalty so so there's 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 all sorts of of, of you know decisions like that that need to be made but but any business that's coming into the sort of the reopening that hasn't critically thought about its financial structure, that hasn't thought about its 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 future strategy and how it's going to to um, survive in the post COVID world is is potentially um, is potentially uh, at risk. I think. I think um, talking about uh, the, the negotiations with landlords. Um, We've seen a lot of our clients negotiating with landlords and some of them getting somewhere, some of them not, some of them ending up in CVAs. I think um, initially when the first lockdown happened, there was um, a huge amount of course of sympathy for um, the occupiers and operators um, who immediately had their flow of income switched off. Um, Lagging behind that, of course, is the landlords who didn't feel the impact of that until, uh, well, after the first rent day, um, after lockdown, what was that, June, well, 25th March, actually, um, and then then the June. And since then, uh, the occupiers have had less and less income to be able to flow through to landlords. And so less and less has been going, going to the landlords. Um, I think now and over the months, there has become uh, a realisation that actually the relationship is truly symbiotic. There have to be landlords um, to provide premises to tenants and therefore the landlords also have to be in a strong enough position to survive. Um, and 
landlords have uh, mortgagees that they have to answer to, um, the same as tenants have their investors that they have to answer to. Um, so hands are tied on both sides. And that's where the government has stepped in uh, with the moratorium on forfeiture that, that currently ends on the 30th of June. Um, there's this is going to be a, a, a big issue for businesses going forward. Um, it's been initially, I think the deadline was the end of December, and then we went to March. Now it's June. Um, there's currently a, a call for evidence by the uh, government to effectively to, to find out, to, to try to put together ideas about what's going to happen um, when we come to the end of June. Um, there's a 4th of May deadline on this uh, call for evidence um, and various options that they're that they're putting forward um, for discussion. Um, but I think the, a real crunch time um, is coming uh, at the end of June um, and occupiers and landlords need to be getting their heads together to to um, to work out something that works for both of them because it has to work for both of them um, to try to stop um, the, the insolvencies that may very well be coming otherwise uh, and the voids in the high street. Nigel, I think you just have something brief to add there. Yeah, very quickly, because I know we've got to tie this down, but um, just, just interested to get Ingrid's views because I talked to a number of you know, senior players and and Historically, something like a CVA was was not something a CEO and Frank, you'll know this, or a CFO would want to do. It's almost like a um, personal admission of failure. <laughs> um, but I see it almost becoming a relevant tactic, and I think that's dangerous. Um, and, and I don't know how easy it is for organizations to do actually Ingrid. So, so what I see is a couple of my clients trying to have, dare I call them, fairly amateur negotiations with landlords who are in a really difficult situation. I see private equity owners putting those people under increasing pressure to get it sorted. And, and I don't know, is the CVA becoming a, a legitimate tool in the toolbox? Is it something that people should just consider and go and do? I think it is heading in that direction. They're certainly becoming more common, but um, for every CVA that actually happens, there are 10 plus negotiations that don't actually go to CVA. Um, and the outcome is relatively similar in the sense that uh, landlords and uh, creditors are, are spoken to and they decide to um, go down a particular path but without actually invoking a procedure. Um, so I, I think um, I think that the principle is more prevalent perhaps than, than we see um, it, and, and it, it, it's, it, it's, it goes a little under the radar um, and maybe uh, Maybe the, the maybe an actual CVA is not great for reputation, but there are plenty of things that you can do that don't quite go as far as CVA, um, which can protect your reputation but have a similar a similar effect ultimately. I'd like to just jump in on there, if I if I may. Um, uh, I think very interesting um, um, debate. I mean, I, I actually think that the prevalence of CVAs points to to something more fundamental with the, U, the way that the UK property market is, um, is organised. Because from, a, from an operator's perspective, 
um, uh, and particularly in, particularly in hospitality, the types of leases that that one tends to get offered they tend to be um, they tend to be extremely long term. So it's it's perfectly normal to have 20, 25, or even longer um, leases. So that's a financial commitment that one is making for for a time period that's you know that's substantial. And then of course, and this is I'm not I won't be the first person that's that's commented on this, but of course that that most leases will contain an upwards only rent review. Um, and, um, and, and those things combined, just those two things combined mean that, that you know, if, if, if something goes wrong in a business's growth or trajectory, they find themselves, you know, constrained, constricted by this, this extremely, extremely um, uh, difficult uh, legal agreement that they've signed. So I think, I think, the CVA, to my mind, the CVA is a, is a valid tool, and I think organisations should consider it, depending on how they're getting on with, um, with, with their negotiations. But I think the fact it exists and it has become so popular points to something more fundamentally wrong with the UK, with the UK property market. Uh, I agree absolutely with that, and I hope that one of the outcomes of this horrendous last year that the industry has had is that there will be more sensible structuring of property interests going forward. Um, right back when Tony Blair was Prime Minister, he put in place um, a code of practice for commercial leases. And one of the features of that was that there should be upwards, downwards rent reviews. Um, it was a voluntary code and it, and it still is. Uh, and so that has never really been adopted. Um, but with the move now towards more turnover rents um, or base rents and turnovers, um, this, is, this is effectively upwards, downwards rent reviews. Um, the problem for landlords, of course, is that they've come in uh, and invested in these properties and got their, um, got their funding on the basis of upwards only reviews. Now, question is, um, do their funders, uh, the, the choice uh, is um, that they have unsustainable leases and voids, or they have more sustainable leases with rents that fluctuate and hopefully fewer voids because um, because their occupiers can work together with them and, and the businesses survive and flourish. Um, what that takes from a landlord though and more particularly their lenders who who and each sort of step you go is going to become more risk averse um, is that they're effectively uh, becoming um, investors, if you like, in the occupier's business. Um, and it, they, they, they don't have control over whether that business at the location is successful or not, and therefore what the turnover at that location is. Um, so it's quite a leap for the industry to, to go too far in that direction. Um, and I think, I think we will well, already um, we've we've gone quite a long way towards it over this um, past year, um, but it's something that will need to be incremental to to be able to um, to have that risk absorbed uh, in the financial structure of the entire industry. Thanks, Ingrid. 
I'm really sorry, everyone, but we're going to have to wrap this up now. Um, we're way over time, but it's been such an interesting discussion and some really interesting points. So I'm looking forward to meeting again and discussing further. Thanks very much. This is a Charles Russell Speechley's podcast.